you look on the front of your bulletin, you'll see a picture of a car. You'll see it up on the screen. Uh, if you've been going with us through this series, you'll know uh, exactly where I'm going uh, with this. But if you haven't, uh, just a little uh, quick orientation. We've um, basically gotten on an airplane and flown to the Greater Corinth International Airport. We've landed, and Jesus has picked us up, meeting us at the airport. Going into the rental car place, we asked the question. He asked us the question, what kind of car do you want to go in? Naturally, I spotted the Hemi Challenger convertible, 1970, and I said, how about that one, Jesus? And he's like, wherever you're going, uh, just bring me along with you, and it's all good. And if I were to say anything about the series, uh, that I think summarizes a lot of what's happening in this book. But for our purposes today, I just want to be clear on something. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, or I'm not trying to be uh, cavalier about uh, driving a Hemi Challenger and having the Lord in it. But I do want to underscore something, and that is as we're taking this trip, I want to be emphatic about who's behind the wheel. And in this case, it's Jesus. We're going on a trip to Corinth, and we're trying to understand it as he's helping us to comprehend what happened in this city 2,000 years ago. And as we are in the passenger seat, not that we're being passive about it, but we are alongside him, or rather he's alongside us in this journey as our best guide, he's given us some insight into what transpired back in the day. Now, we can do this because Jesus is eternal, and so he can go anywhere he wants to on the timeline at any time. But I won't belabor the point only to say that as we've gone through the book of 2 Corinthians, it's a book that has imprinted upon it a lot of the experiences that the Apostle Paul who wrote the book and the congregation of people that he helped get off the ground and launch into a church, how those people related over time. And in the span of about three or four years, it started from a honeymoon period, you know, where you got all these good feels and everything happening in between uh, Paul and the people that are hearing the gospel and their salvation happening and people getting baptized and the church starting to form to a church that's established and now is turning on him. Have you ever experienced betrayal at any level or a friendship that went south or perhaps in your life you had a relationship that you thought was going well but forces being what they are Things just didn't quite work out the way you thought they would. Well, in essence, that's what happened. And just to bring you up to speed, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing this book, this book of 2 Corinthians that we're cruising through with the Lord, he's trying to get things into a place where it is all good again. And if there was ever a purpose that was continuing with God and us, it is to get us into a place where things are as they need to be. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that the Apostle Paul shed for the purposes of this congregation of people that he dearly loved. But there's also a lot of pain associated with it. And like so many of us, when we think about Jesus and we think about the church and we think about the good things that God has in mind for us, we don't oftentimes put pain into that sentence alongside everything else I just mentioned. But rather, we think about pain as sort of a sidebar 
aspect of our faith. But the reality is, no matter who you are, believer or non-believer, I can pretty much guess that all of you, if I were to ask you, you would say, yeah, I've got, I've got a story about pain going on in my life. And given that, that, that effect that uh, we're all experiencing universally, it's even fair to say when you talk to somebody at the grocery store or you meet somebody in, kind of pub, in, a, in a public venue and you're saying, I wonder if that person will engage me in conversation and perhaps they do or maybe they don't and maybe they are kind of cold or indifferent and you walk away thinking, wow, um, maybe they didn't like me. I would bet the issue wasn't you at all. It said like so many of us, we're distracted by the stuff we've got going on in our lives, in our heads, our worries, our concerns, our anxieties, things that, quite honestly, we need help with. And the Apostle Paul, when he was looking at this church, and he was seeing it through the filter of pain, he's just recognizing something that we're all facing. And as we're driving down the road in our hemi-challenger with Jesus at the wheel, and us alongside him and he alongside us, we're just processing what we're seeing. And if a believer were to come up to me and say, I was hoping, a new believer, I was hoping that somewhere along the way, the pain would go away. I would have to tell them, that's not quite how it works. That there is the presence of pain until things are finally completed. And that won't be for a while. But it's how you relate to it that we need to wrap our minds around. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing this letter, these people had turned on him. They had actually said, we're not so sure that you're the real deal anymore. Because while you were in prison, now mind you, as he's writing this letter, he's in prison. And he's seeking to meet them again someday, knowing that all these tensions are in the air, and he's not sure if he shows up, whether or not they'll like him, or whether they'll kick him out, or whether they'll embrace him. And he's been working in the background with people like Titus and the Macedonian church to ensure that when that meeting happens, it will be glorious. Almost in a conspiratorial way. And I, I, how many conspiracy people are there? You're like, no. Okay, there's one up there. All right. And then there are others who are saying, I'm not telling any, anybody that I, I don't believe the news and I think some of that stuff has merit. And that's probably all of us. And maybe we choose, would rather choose the word alternative ideas about what's happening in the world around us. And I think we get comfortable with that, right? But the fact of the matter is, whether you're mainstream or alternative, when you turn on the news or you hear the alternative, do you walk away kind of confused? Like, I don't know what the heck's going on in the world. I, I have no idea. I'm hearing this and I'm hearing that, and I just kind of wash my hands of it. Well, we even had that happen, like, on a, on a, on a, on a home front within our own family. Can you believe it? There was a conspiracy. I, I tell you in the church, there was a conspiracy happening in our family. I'm not lying. Yes, the whole family, except for my wife and I planning this for months. And when things started happening that didn't make any sense, my wife and I were trying to come up with a narrative that says, well, that explains that behavior. For example, like Friday, I'm driving up from 
from my home back to work for lunch, and I see, of all things, my daughter who lives in New York and should be working at her engineering firm, pulling out of the advanced auto parts. Talk about confusing. It was her car. It was her aviator glasses. It was her long hair. And I'm thinking, this doesn't work. She's in New York. She doesn't have any time off to be coming. And I thought, she has a boyfriend right there, sitting on the end there, plum crazy purple shirt. And I thought, well, they must be getting together. They're adults. They can do whatever they want. So I called mother, and I said, do you know anything about Maya? I'm coming to town. She's like, I don't know nothing about it. And I'm like, if she doesn't know anything about it, then this is, this is definitely a conspiracy. And then I thought, well, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe they're planning something nice for us, like taking us out to eat or something. So we'll push it. And I'm like, stuff isn't making sense. Kids are behaving weird. Uh, people are crying. Cats are dying. You know, that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of like just confused. And I just bracket it and say, all right, I don't know what the mainstream theory is. I don't know what the alternative theory is. All I know is my world isn't making any sense right now. So I just put my head down and went to work. And sure enough, the conspiracy unfolded to the point where an event happened. And the event was based on a series of, dare I say it, misunderstandings. I'm not going to say lies, but we were definitely misled in a subtle way to believe that we were going to Pittsburgh, but we had to go to the church to pick up my When we came here, it was obvious that there was something going on, like a wedding shower or something like that. Well, then when Christian pulled in, he pulled right into the door over there, and he said, my name's in there, and I look, and it's got a bunch of people in there. Manny and I were like, this might be about us. And we walk in, and I kid you not, I'm just I'm flabbergasted. And I'll tell you why. It was because the people that were there were like from all over the continent. We had people from Illinois. We had people from Washington State. We had people from my former church. We had people from our church. We had people from um, Kansas City. We had, and I'm like, I know all of these people. But we never gather together for anything because we have our own type of relationship that follows those lines. And all of a sudden, we are in this mix of people. And it was a celebration for 30 years with my lovely bride over there. And we're so grateful for the conspiracy and that it was a good conspiracy and that the lies were good lies, all that stuff, good pastor-kid behavior. And... And Brittany's not fired because Brittany's just like, I got to keep Leonard from going down there when I decided I was going to do something downstairs yesterday. And she kept coming down saying, I've got something up there I need to talk to you about. And I'm like, what? And meanwhile, conspiracies unfolding in the Fellowship Hall. All that to say that when we walked in and I saw all those people, I knew it was celebrating what we're going to celebrate actually on October 8th. I think that's the right day, isn't it? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, just kidding, honey, just kidding. It's October 9th. No. Sunny, uh, 
I'm going to stop digging this hole that I'm in and step out for a second. And as I do that, um, first of all, I had no words to describe what didn't make any sense with all these different people. The second thing was, you know what crossed my mind? This is what heaven is going to look like. All these different people that have no social connection within this known realm will all of a sudden be gathered in a gathering where they're all together and all of their stories are just like intermingling together. I got to tell you, it was probably some of the most profound joy that I've experienced in a long time. It, it really was. I was overwhelmed with it, mainly for that reason. And it made me think, honestly, this is what heaven's going to be like. And it was so special. And I thought, I can't wait. However, we do have to wait, don't we? And we have to work together so that when that day comes, enough people will be there that we are connected with because they are connected to him. You see, the reason why Jesus is driving this car in this story is because the only way this works is if, is if he's at the center. And we're just alongside. That's the only way it works. I mean, some of us have been a little rocked by what we've heard uh, happening to uh, pastors like Joshua Harris and uh, other people who are connected with Hillsong saying, don't believe the faith anymore, we're done. We don't, we don't, we don't buy it, we don't buy Jesus anymore. And... You know, it's confusing for people that are hearing that kind of language. But I also recognize how it can happen. I don't know the hearts of those people, but I can tell you this. The minute I get inside that Hemi Challenger and I push Jesus over into passenger side, that's when the trip starts to go south. And this is essentially the whole problem that is going on in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. It's all going south. And Paul is saying, I've helped to bring these people into being as a different place for people to grab hold of something that they can't find out there in the lovely San Diego-ness of Corinth. You know, where rich people go and they, they have beautiful houses, beautiful weather, beautiful everything. And people even poorer can, can, can also participate in something that has so many wonderful aspects of it, but they're so spiritually empty and bankrupt. And when Paul gave them the gospel, it was like it was like a fire just lit, and the church took off. And it was wonderful, but like so many things, when we first start following Jesus, it is a struggle. You want to put him behind the wheel? And then you're like, no. I need to be behind the wheel for this. And then he's like, dude, just drive. See where it takes you. And then when, it, when we're in the ditch and we're saying, Jesus, I wrecked the car. He pulls us out, dusts us off, and we put it back at the center, and it begins to work again. But then all of a sudden we say, I'm going to drive for a while. And then he says, Go for it. And then, in our own wisdom, our own way, we drive the car into the ditch again, and you, wouldn't you know it? He comes to our rescue. Time and time and time again. 
It's just the type of God that we worship. But as he's doing that, he's looking at us straight from the shoulder. He's saying, when are you going to grow up? When are you going to see it? When are you going to see that the way it is by design, if I'm at the center, it works. If I'm not, it doesn't work. All this is going on with the Apostle Paul. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, if you're a new believer or new to the faith, there's a book in the New Testament, which is the latter part of the Bible, that's called 1 Corinthians, and basically it's a book that tells all the problems that happen in the church. And Paul dealt with it. And as he worked through each of them, there was one more issue, and it was this. Corinth was having people gravitate into the church who were pretty powerful. These are the kind of people that work for the Roman government. And in, and in that day and time, if you, if you wanted everyone to know that you were an important human being in your identity, you would do this. You would go into a community with your resume, and you would say, I, I worked for the government on these big civic projects. I was a benefactor giving a whole bunch of money to these people over here. I was responsible for that initiative over there. I was, I was involved in some pretty heavy stuff that had to do with the development of our infrastructure. On and on and on, you, you get the point. Or I had this position in government, and when people hear that word, uh, pro-council or prelate or Caesar, you know, those kind of things mean nothing to us, but for them it was like, oh, you are a pretty important person. Well, these people started showing up in church. And the majority of the people, they were somewhere on the social ladder, middle class, lower class, upper middle class. And then these very powerful people with lots of capacity to do powerful things said they just kind of gravitated to the top and they started kind of running the show. And the image looks something like this. Let me just show it to you real quick. Uh, if, if you can just imagine a hierarchy of people, that would be it. We'd probably be in that structure somewhere near the bottom. If we had a resume, it would say a few things, but it wouldn't say as much as the guys who are farther up or the gals up, up the food chain there. They would have a lot of impressive things to say. So impressive that if you went out into public, you'd see little plaques or little uh, uh, designations that said, Oh yeah, so-and-so was responsible for this being a thing. And it was just a way of recognizing their social clout. And the Apostle Paul is seeing this starting to happen in the church. And along with this social clout comes power and influence. And they were actually moving in in the name of Christ, saying they were followers of Christ, but essentially they were pretty quick to keep in place that. Now what's so bad about that, honestly? It would be like me sitting down next to Brian and Brian being at the top of the food chain and he'd look at me and he'd say, no, you can't sit here. You, you need to sit back, back in the back. And it was just that kind of arrangement. You didn't fraternize with people in that station in life. Even in church, it was segregated on who you were, who you knew, what you could do. And these guys come in, they start rearranging the furniture, and the Apostle Paul gets wind of it, and he's like, this thing is going south. 
Because if everybody starts to think like the world out there, when they come in here, then guess what? Pretty soon, there won't be any difference between what's happening in here and what's going on out there. Matter of fact, look, the people doing out there, what they do out there, are probably going to do it better than we can do it. And what Paul wanted us to understand is that with this place, Things are different. There is a new way of relating to everything. When we gather for worship, it's not as I'm from this place in life, or I've done that, or I've had this set of accomplishments, or I am a powerful person. It's that we're all equal at the foot of the cross. But we're also equal as God's children and members of his family in that regard. All of that stuff just kind of doesn't have the same significance. You with me so far? I hope I'm not boring you with this history lesson because what I'm getting ready to read will make a lot of sense as I do that. So just imagine this. I'm near the top of the food chain and I bring my resume. Anybody ever have to fill out a resume? What do you do when you fill out a resume? You put all of your work experiences, all the things you've done that might be meaningful to somebody that's going to potentially hire you. And do you ever just add a few more things in there like, I'm just going to throw this in there just in case. That way, maybe they'll catch their eye and perhaps I'll be considered as a candidate. Resumes are important, don't get me wrong. So important that as we read this letter, the Apostle Paul was asked, after he started this church, he birthed it, he set it into motion, you know what they had the nerve to say while he's in jail? Next time you come, send us a resume. Can you believe it? He's like, what is going on in this church? They don't believe that I'm the same person that I was four or five years ago? They don't believe that I'm who I say I am? No, they don't. You know why? Because while he's spending time in jail in Ephesus for preaching the gospel, these other people have moved in and said, we're going to reorder everything, and it's going to be different. But it was killing the spirit in the church. Because when people came to church, and if you were sitting in somebody's seat, and they saw you sitting in their seat, you ever had this happen? Pardon me, I think you're in my seat. You ever, ever had that happen in church? I hope not. Perhaps you've done that to other people, and if you have, when we meet at the Lord's table, please ask the Lord to forgive you. <laughs> Why? Because we have two commands. Love God and love our neighbor, that's everybody, as ourselves, not people of different power and influence. And that was not going on. And the Apostle Paul says, I've got to disarm this thing because it's killing these people and they don't even know it. They think they're doing so well because, well, it's a celebrity culture at that point. Everybody that's going to that church knows that the movers and shakers are there and they're leading the thing and it is, it is a cult of personality at this point. And when they talk about Paul, they're like, yeah, Paul, he, yeah, he was there a long time ago for sure. We remember him, but there is probably better. And... As, as he shared the gospel, he did a good thing, but he's not a great speaker, not a great writer, and honestly, he's not really that much to look at. And that is the honest truth. I'm not making this up. That was the feeling. And so they just discounted him. 
Have you ever felt discounted by other people? If you have, it's probably because they feel like in some way they're better than you are. And yet, for whatever reason, Paul said, that's not going to work in the church. We can't have one person saying that they're better than another person. We can't have people looking at each other and identifying themselves by those rules. The church is about something different, something special. And the only thing that really counts is whether or not you have a connection with Jesus. And out of that connection, some pretty cool things are starting to happen in your life. Paul got all of that. And he's hoping that when he meets these people, they'll get it too. So here's what he does. He recognizes that people are throwing their resumes around like like there's no there's nobody's business. And he's like, okay, I'm getting ready to visit you guys. I'm going to bring my resume. That way I can reestablish my credibility with you all. Okay, with me? So in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he starts boasting about the things he's done. Isn't that cool? He's bragging about the things he's done in church. Paul's, even Paul's doing that. He's bragging. You're like, hmm, that doesn't sound right. But bear with me. Let's just look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, those passages, uh, beginning uh, with, with around uh, 17, 18. There, it's a pretty long section there. So here's what Paul says. Okay, people. I have worked much harder and, get this, I've been in prison. I've been in Folsom. Now, stop. Pause button. If, you, if that was you, would you tell your prospective employer right out of the gate? Yep, I was in Folsom Prison. Or I was in the Correctional Center at Elkton. Just want you to know that out of the gate. So please continue to read on. So Paul says, I, I, I've been in prison. Matter of fact, I've been in there a number of times. And I want you to know this. On my resume, point number two bullet point, I've been flogged more severely and exposed to death again and again. How about that? Bet you haven't. Bet you haven't been to prison that often. Bet you haven't been exposed to death that many times. Five times I received 40 lashes. Three times beaten with rods. Now, I'm an employer and I'm reading this and I'm thinking, what is this guy doing? What kind of nonsense is this resume? You with me? So he goes on to explain that he was pelted with stones three times, shipwrecked, and Cast about in the open sea. Continuing to the second page of the resume, he unfolds this. Go ahead. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, danger from Gentiles, on and on. You get the point, right? But you're saying, why? Why is he saying all that stuff when they've already discounted him? 
those aren't exactly what I would call the kind of credentials that would that would that would uh, curry favor from people. You'd be like, he may be radioactive. I don't want any of that to rub off on me. Yet as Paul is saying all these things, he goes through the list and describes all of his pain. And if we just stop right here, we looked at that list, and we took our pain, and we lined it up with his pain, could any of us honestly say that it's been that rough? Now, I don't want to discount anybody's pain, but I can just tell you that's, that's a pretty intense series of experiences. Had any of us gone through them, we would definitely have PTSD. And if not, we would just feel pretty beat up. Yet for some reason, he feels like, at this point I need to say this because I'm trying to disarm something. But my biggest struggle, struggle that I face daily is this. He's thinking less about himself. And as we move on to the next slide, he's thinking about this. The pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin and I don't inwardly burn? And as he expands on that a little bit farther, he says, if I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. Now, honestly, do you guys like to brag about your weakness? Do you like weakness? Um, there's a reason why I don't go to the gym and work out with weights. Because I'm, I'm weak, it's embarrassing. There's actually a reason why I don't work out with weights at home. Because I embarrass myself. And I don't like people to know that I'm weak. But as I'm looking at weakness and thinking, wait a minute, how does that fit on a resume in some kind of top value way? But yet the Apostle Paul is saying, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. Just kind of throws weakness in there as, yeah, this is sort of a clue, people, as to where I'm going with this. And as they're reading the resume, and they're thinking, he's a smart aleck. He's, he's, he's telling us these things, and they almost, I'm sure, had to laugh. Now, here's another thing. If you didn't do something great that established your name on a, in, in, in a sense that everybody knew, oh, yeah, that person did that. They're very powerful. Don't get too close. They've, uh, you know, their, their, their celebrity status or you're hearing all of these accomplishments or the fact that they have this wealth, or maybe they're even a trust baby that they've just been given wealth because they were born in the right place at the right time. If those things don't apply to you, there's still a way, and it's this. Let's say you go off to war, and the Romans were very good about conquering things left and right, and most of the places that were there in the crosshairs had walls that surrounded the city and the responsibility of the soldiers were to take ladders up to the wall and then climb over and jump down knowing that in all probability when they <laughs> climbed over bad things were going to happen. They're probably going to get killed. They probably were going to get a plaque in their name somewhere that said they died in valor. And as people look at that person, they're, they're thinking that was an above average brave human being. 
So imagine you're the first over the wall with the ladder, and you climb over, and you survive. Just imagine the bragging rights that creates. I mean, every time you went to lunch, and people saw you in the restaurant, and they said, oh, that's the dude that went over the ladder and survived, and won another one for our, our team, I'm going to buy him some lunch. And so you could really capitalize on how that event would move you up the ranks so, so quickly. And the Apostle Paul said, guess what, people? I've got a wall story, too. And it's awesome. It's going to blow you away. And it goes something like this. Well, the governor was mad at me. The king was mad at me. So clearly, I was an important person in their mind. And they were out to get me. And so in Damascus, which was heavily guarded, and they wanted to arrest me, here's what I did. Late at night, when nobody's watching, a couple of friends of mine and I snuck up the wall. They put me in a basket, and they lowered me down on the rope. And as soon as my feet hit the ground, I ran for the hills as fast as I possibly could. Isn't that awesome? And they're like, we don't get why that is even, why, why that even qualifies to be spoken as a person of heroic status and valor. But what the Apostle Paul was doing was in some sense, making fun of how much people had done all of these things to create a powerful resume to say, I am somebody. I am important. And he wanted to say this. Well, from the standpoint of our car ride with Jesus, what's important and what's not important is a major difference. What's important is actually everyone made in God's image. What's not important is how people discount one another, climb on top of one another, use one another, exploit one another. That's important, but not in the way that you think it is. And as Paul is just disarming the structure that had been created in this church, He's saying what those guys are up to is undoing the very thing that I've been trying to do in your life. Now, when you look at the message title and it says, when Christians get beat up. Now, clearly the Apostle Paul was beat up, right? But what was his superpower? What is your superpower? How does it work? Well, the one thing I've discovered in reading this book is that more than any other book that Paul wrote, he used the word joy more than any other book that he's written. And the way he used it, he used it in a variety of ways, but each time that he used it, it was always in light of something painful that he was going through. Let me just put a couple of verses up there so you can see what I'm talking about. Because I know you guys have pain. And I don't want to diminish that. And I know that you want to know how to relate to it in a meaningful way. So right out of the gate, in the first chapter, he says, Not that we lord it over your faith like other people might be doing. But we work with you for your joy. 
All of a sudden, we're working together, we're collaborating so that mutually we're all experiencing joy together and we're all sort of building one another up together, sort of a, a mutual elevating process. For some reason, the church is different because instead of climbing on top of people, we're pushing people up and encouraging people. And hopefully, when they come to this place of all places, they will discover there's something different here. They have a different set of rules. And every time we behave like we don't, we discredit our mission. Paul says, we're working together for your joy. But let me put another verse up just to illustrate. As he says this, he talks about being distressed, and yet, I should have been rejoicing. And he said that he wanted to share his joy in the midst of all the distress and anguish. Just those ideas behind what he's writing. And let's just put another passage up there. In chapter 7, he talks about He wanted to take pride in them. And he was encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Okay, so just back up. He's getting beat up. And as he's getting beat up, shipwrecked, beaten, flogged, thrown in prison, whatever. He's also saying, my joy knows no bounds. Now how do you connect joy with the pain of that moment? Other than to say something else is at work here. That's not of this world. I'll just put one more sample up there. In it, he talks about how there are people who just need comforted. And we're in sorrow and great concern. And the fact that they were going through pain on his behalf of his pain somehow elevated his joy. Now, I think a few weeks ago, uh, Matt, when he preached, talked about Marie Kondo, you know, how you get rid of things that don't spark joy, and how you keep things that do spark joy. You guys familiar with that whole thing, sparking joy? Which is a pretty cool notion, by the way. Because the fact of the matter is, I honestly think, wouldn't you agree that we all need more joy? I mean, out there, it's pretty super saturated with pain, with negativity, with some just dark stuff. And it's easy to come in here and just be so downcast. And yet there is something that comes alive in the lives of people that are connected to Jesus that is otherworldly. It's a joy unexplainable. And he's looking at this list of hardships, and he could have played the victim card and said, hey, you guys think you got it tough? Do you? Well, you punks have nothing going on compared to what I've been through. And he could have just said, this is my, my, my badge of Christianity. I've been through all these painful things. Look how hardcore I am as a Christian. And I think some people read that like that. But what the Apostle Paul is really saying is, I'm kind of making light of my pain. Because something at work in me, in the midst of my pain, says, underneath it all, there's a joy. Now, when I walked into that room the other day, last night, it seems like the other day, 
And I saw all those people, and I had those thoughts among so many others. There was a joy. It was a deep joy. And it had to do with a few things. So I'm just going to fast forward to the, the, the last slide um, that, that, that talks about the four ways that joy can become our superpower. The first thing that Paul always did every day was he aligned his heart with Christ. I'm sure there was a time of reading the Bible. There certainly was praying because we should as believers pray through the course of the day about anything and everything. And it's just maintaining that connection. And that's how we do it. We get into trouble. We ask the Lord for help. And where? The Lord helps. Things get done. I won't tell you what happened to my, my mother and my sister and the friend Levi bringing the cake over. I don't know if you saw the cake that we had. It looked like a suitcase. And they're hauling it like it's precious cargo. And wouldn't you know it, my mom... She doesn't drive much, and so her fuel pump on her car kind of went out on her in Indianapolis in rush hour traffic and construction. You're here, though, right? Because you're determined to bring that cake here. And it made it. And uh, with God, there's always a way, right? We're helpless. And Jesus says, that's okay. Because Paul goes on to write in chapter 12. He just tips his hand fully. And he says, When I am weak and powerless, then I am strong and powerful in Christ. Chapter 12, verse 6, which we're going to study next week. But that said, just for your benefit, because I think that so many of us have perhaps taken joy and put it on a shelf and said, it's not going to happen anytime soon. It is just not part of my story right now. And there's so many voices that say, yeah, that's right. Put it on the shelf. It doesn't have a place in this world. But when you come into this place, joy is paramount. It is our superpower because at the end of the day, we know how the story ends, don't we? We know that being disconnected from joy is actually in some ways disconnecting ourselves from our hope, from the promises that we have been given, from the vision that the Apostle Paul said, I want to meet with this church on earth and in heaven and I want to be awesome. Joy is a way of saying, I believe in those things. I trust those things and no matter what, I'm going to access joy in the midst of anything and everything through Christ. And that really is my concern in this room right now, is how many of us are connected. Not religious, but connected. And it's a pretty easy process. It's really just opening yourself up to Him and then beginning to walk towards Him and Him with you and then growing into maturity in the process. Being a part of a church, obviously, has that 
is in that story, but also being connected to other people. Because one thing I know about each of you, and many of you I've already experienced it alongside you, is that there's no shortage of suffering. And it's been a privilege to pray with you, to come alongside you when that happens. And that leads to the other part of it, because there is no joy without other people. You can't have joy in this world with a private faith. You need other people that also believe the same promises and trust the same Savior. And if you've ever had other people involved in your faith alongside you, you know what a game changer it is. I mean, I honestly didn't have... I had joy, like, at two, perhaps, yesterday. And then when I walked in the room and that celebration happened, the joy was like off, it paid, it paid off of the scale. Why? There's something energizing about other people who believe the same things. And it's because inside those people is the Savior in whom they believe in, making the whole thing come alive. And then there's healthy environments. I don't know that Marie Kondo is too far off the, off the, off the, uh, off the mark because most of us are so busy worrying about the what-ifs, we don't stop and look at what's in front. What's in front of me right now? What have I not been paying attention to? Who have I not been paying attention to in that environment? In, in the Soviet Union, this is where I end up, I'm, I'm done, except for this story. In the Soviet Union, all right, I promise, I'm done. Um, in the Soviet Union, before the wall fell, there was a city called, uh, uh, I believe it was uh, Tanya, and it was just a very rough, painful-looking environment. And I'll just show a picture. How about going on a vacation there? You can get a top, top floor so you can see the smokestacks billowing all that toxic air into the, into the, in, into the city. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean, that's the way people... How high do you think your joy would be there? It'd be a struggle, wouldn't it? Well, this city, after the wall fell, was trying to reclaim its identity, and the mayor did something kind of weird. He went to City Hall, and he painted it bright orange. Everybody's like, he's got it out of his mind. He's a lead, not be painting buildings. And then all of a sudden, everybody started painting buildings. And they had all of this beauty and all of this just vivid coloration. And wouldn't you know it, people started smiling again. They kind of felt happy again. And the pickpockets stopped pickpocketing. The drug dealers said, I don't need drugs, or we don't need drugs here. And people started to kind of walk out of the darkness and into a, a more thriving way of life because there was something about the environment that just catered to their well-being. And I think all of those are in play when it comes to your joy and mine. Now, I don't have control of many environments except our home. And then, of course, there's an override person. And, but mostly, uh, she'll let me do what I want to do. Um, but when not, um, then I know that her wisdom will have to prevail. And I don't know about you guys, I'm sorry I threw you all under the bus, but there's something about your home and hospitality and bringing people into your home 
that is a, a source of powerful joy. And as I end, this building is just a symbol of a home that God has said, I've been preparing for you from the very beginning. And yet you're so distracted by everything else but me that you're not seeing it. And every Sunday I come in here, before I do, I pray, God, help me to say whatever it is that's in alignment with your purpose and help everyone here to be open to it, even if I go a little bit long, help them to be patient. Speak to us so that we can see what we couldn't see before. And maybe God is saying, you know what? It's time to start a painting project in your life. And I want to color you all the colors of Jesus. Would you bow with me? Father, as we just take this moment and we sanctify it in response, we pray that you would work in every heart here, mine included, so that we would draw close to you. We would trust that you love us profoundly and you see how pathetic we are when we get behind the wheel and we think we got it all under control. Lord Jesus, we know that you're a gentleman and you don't override our lives, but you desire to influence, in a way, influence us in ways that we need. I just pray for everyone here that we would have an open heart of surrender to that influence in our hearts as we surrender this time, your words, and our lives to you. In Jesus' name.